Hello, Ryerson. You're listening to Blue and Gold. From the Ryersonian, I'm your host, Nijudal Malise. It's been about a year since the first documented case of COVID-19 was reported. Since then, countries around the world have been grappling with crises of all sorts as the disease runs rampant. This week, we felt it was time to take a step back and talk about stories outside of those that have dominated the news cycle. Our video executive producer Deepak Bidway spoke with author and academic Monia Mazik about Islamophobia in France and around the world. Then I speak with Brad Galloway, coordinator at the Center on Hate, Bias and Extremism at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, on the rise in far-right extremism in the United States. But first, here's Deepak Bidway's conversation with Monia Mazik. In 1967, French President Charles de Gaulle, standing on the balcony of Montreal City Hall, declared his support for the independent Quebec. It was unprecedented for a foreign leader to openly support the breaking up of a country. Even 400 years after French colonized Quebec, France wants to keep the ties with Quebec. However, the same France demands that Muslims who arrived in the last few decades back cut their cultural, language and religious ties to the countries they came from. In early October, French President Emmanuel Macron announced his intention to put unprecedented restrictions on peaceful Muslim population such as stricter oversight of schooling and even putting restrictions on menus. France's double standard, Islamophobia and plan to curb basic human rights took an even ugly turn after last month's terrorist attack when a middle school teacher was killed by an 18-year-old Islamic terrorist. French President Emmanuel Macron declared that France has been attacked. He also praised France's long history of free speech and secular values. French President Emmanuel Macron earlier today saying his country is under attack after a man with a knife killed at least three people inside of a church. France is raising its security alert to the highest level. Just today, President Macron announced that he was going to add 4,000 soldiers to the streets of France to protect their churches and their schools, taking the total of soldiers there to 7,000. Author and academic Monia Mazi wrote an article in Rabel exposing France's double standard. She was born in former French colony of Tunisia and now lives in Canada. We talked to her to understand the historical misrepresentation that demonizes non-white races and how amplifying actions of a handful of extremist Muslims increases Islamophobia. Monia, welcome to the show. I was aware about you know the British atrocities in you know in other countries in India, Kenya, and other African countries, but I was shocked to learn about French colonial atrocities in Africa that included killing and raping local population, as you write in your article. What was your experience growing up in Tunisia? I grew up in an era that is post-independent. Tunisia was not a French colony. They called it a French protectorate. It came mainly for financial reasons. And of course, later on, a lot of it uh, was based on resources like agriculture. So uh, most of the crops and were actually taken by the French. The most important thing is the cultural, what I call the cultural colonialism or post-colonialism. France left. Nevertheless, the language using like French was still in the administration. Many uh, schools were also, French was used as the language of teaching over there. A lot of these young people either had 
you know, a fascination and admiration to France and they saw in it the country where they can go and have a higher education. But at the, also at the same time, this is the French where a lot of Tunisians died for their independence, died because of the colony. So it is a, some sort of a hate, but also fascination, I would say love. I lived at least in a post-colonial area when it is more about identity more than anything like physical violence. So it's more like um, looking for for our roots and be proud of of who we are, knowing that no matter what we do, we are always, even if we go to France, we are always looked as some sort of a different class, never French enough to be French, but at the same time, maybe never also uh, Muslim enough if we want to be who we are. So the next thing I want to talk about is your recent article in Travel titled French States Demand That Muslim Muslims Forget Colonial History Shows uh, Double Standard. So what, what prompted you uh, to write this article? I wrote this article because after killing of the French teacher in France, there was a lot of debate and I would say the political class and uh, many media were targeting the Muslim community, the French Muslim community, uh, once again, it's not the first time, but targeting them in their criticism, criticizing them that they are not doing enough to become French, they are not. So once again, this sort of, now it is becoming very much each time there is a terrorist attack happening in France, the question of the Muslim problematique or what we call the Muslim question or, you know, is back again in the media, back again in the vocabulary used by the politician, the French politician. I needed to make some points and bring some points, clarification, I think, into this sort of a debate where you have on one hand the French uh, political class and some of the intellectual and some of the media attacking the usual suspect. And on the other hand, I think you have the French Muslim trying to prove once again their loyalty, their belonging. I think this is where I wanted to maybe bring some light to a lot of people who see this, what's going on with France, why France is having one attack after another and why Muslims in there are most of the time the one who are conducting these attacks. So I think I, my, my article came from those sort of, from these perspectives, try myself even to understand it better, but also to give a different sort of perspective to people who are not familiar with France, who are not familiar with the historical colonization of France, and also the past very tense relationship between the French Muslim community on one hand and the French government or the Republic, the French Republic on the other hand. 1967 visit to Quebec by then French 
president Charles de Gaulle in his speech in a speech he said viva le quebec libre long live free quebec so it's very interesting that when quebec many times to try to reach out to you know uh, the french government they still have the separate ties so it's it's fine if uh, the white people in quebec if they want to have these ties with the france it's fine even after almost uh, 400 years but the muslims who came not even few decades back that's that's not acceptable those who emigrated from these pa- previous former colonies who emigrated to france they kept being dealt with with very much the same attitude the same colonial attitude they got this french citizenship one can really maybe assume that they will be at least you know similar similarly treated as other french but i think unfortunately it's not the case because today what we are seeing is that the former colonial relation and attitude are still present with some french intellectual with some french and not actually it's it's even worse because so when you are a french muslim arab and you you want to know about your history you want to know about this colonial era you are considered as some sort of a troublemaker or some sort of someone living in the past and someone who has never able to move on but what i think it is interesting of happening today you mentioned the example of france and quebec for example those historical um those historical ties are today really like very much enacted and mentioned and celebrated and strengthened and there is no shame at all in mentioning them and keeping them stronger but when it comes to other colonies like um african countries those ties are goes only one way french president macron called new york times complaining yes. about yes and it's so yes, interesting yes. in the article you know he he complained about the lack of support he got from the english media he talked about their shared past and you know how new york times and you know english media is legitimizing violence he talked about the uh, french revolution and scottish ent- uh, enlightenment and how that tied us together and it's so interesting at the same time so he asking people to stand with france but at the same time he is giving weapons to india india is currently ruled by this hindu right wing political party they are suppressing muslim population and france is making billions of dollars out of this weapon purchase so it's fine as long as france is making money it doesn't matter if indian muslim they are suffering they are being you know put in jail without any charges they don't get bail pregnant muslim women don't get bail so that's fine as long as france is making money so the my it, the question comes to me is why the blood of you know white people is so precious and everybody's blood their their values their life is 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 you know not much that worth i think because we are still living post colonial relationship even though you know sometimes we live them through proxies like you exactly the, the example you give so instead of going to colonize india we gave uh, sorry we don't give we sell arms to whoever we think stronger or we want to have more economic trade relationship with so they can so i think totally yes i mean france has been uh, selling arms to india 
also helping militia in Libya. It's not really like, you know, it was not a, a colony by France, but still it has a lot of economic interest in there. You can find the entire interview on ryersonian.ca. And now, here's my conversation with Brad Galloway on the recent rise in far-right terrorism in the United States and how it should be addressed. So I just wanted to start off by, um, I guess, giving a little bit of background information. A recent report published by the Center for Strategic and International Studies found that um, in the first eight months of 2020, white supremacist groups were responsible for two-thirds of terror plots and attacks in the U.S. Um, this came not long after the Department of Homeland Security warned that white supremacy was the, quote, most persistent and lethal threat to the homeland. So I guess I want to start off by asking you, what's behind the rise in far-right terrorism in the U.S. that we're seeing right now? Um, I often uh, start out uh, talking about the internet and what roles it plays in, in uh, you know, these groups, these different types of hate groups that are uh, across U.S., uh, Canada, Europe, they uh, any they will use any platform to push their messaging, and the the internet has really come in as a as a role for them, um, and and tagging onto any sort of platforms that are going out there. One of them, uh, I guess, since 2016 has been the uh, the current U.S. administration. They've been trying to attach on different different levels, um, trying to. Um, you know, get their get their voice across uh, massive platforms, uh, across all the social media. Uh, it seems like it's been um, sort of a game of whack-a-mole that uh, the all these companies are chasing around these hate groups, trying to you know get them off these platforms. But just as soon as they catch up to them, they reappear somewhere. Um, and yeah, so it's. I mean, I also think that the different narratives that are being pushed by you know. Uh, people that are pretty high up there from the top down. Uh, these these groups often take those uh, comments that they make. I mean, we see we see saw recently the the president gave a shout out to the the Proud Boys, and and no matter if that was a negative or a positive thing, these groups don't care. They they want they'll take that um, they'll take that as a win for themselves and 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 sort of. Uh, ride that wave and ride that platform until they so, so they can you know get their their message out there yeah and i guess we can touch on what i'm going to ask next but mm -hmm. you know a lot of people uh only became familiarized with groups like the proud boys after the 2016 election so i guess what impact did trump's election have on the prominence and activity level of these groups like how did they differ before and after um i mean these groups have, I mean, they've always been there. Like these hate groups have always been there. They, they've, it's, it's, you know, these movements have, um, you know, there's, I often refer to it as like pre 9-11 uh, hate groups and then post 9-11. So it's like the, the, the different narratives that they're going on. So whether it's like they're uh, loading up on uh, anti-Islam sentiment uh, after 9-11. Uh, and it seems like the groups, a lot of the newer groups have been like, sort of more like single issue groups, maybe anti-Islam or like, uh, you know, um, homophobic groups or uh, this misogynistic groups, like such as like Proud Boys, things like that. Like they're choosing like certain, like uh, certain 
uh, narratives to push, right? Uh, whereas groups maybe before that would more like the Klan or like these neo-Nazi skinhead groups would be like sort of uh, a, a wide frame of uh, different ideologies that they were uh, accepting into their groups. Um, not to say that that isn't happening now, but then up to the election, then you're getting these uh, sort of, I, I hate to use the word cult, but these kind of like cult oriented groups where they're like um, using the, the pro-Trump narrative to, to push uh, sub-narratives of, you know, racism, uh, division, um, things like that. You know, I mean, directly as, as soon after Trump came into power, there's like the, the Muslim ban building the wall. Uh, he was, you know, uh, calling out, saying that, you know, uh, Mexicans were rapists and things like this. Like it's, you know, it, these groups, as soon as they see that, they almost see like a, a, a voice, a massive voice to, to lead them into this, you know, so-called uh, war that they're looking for. And then of course, these different groups that sort of emerged in the early 2010s were, you know, um, more militia style groups, things like this that were, uh, again, um, look anti-Islam or, or they're looking at single issues. Uh, they love this new new platform of this administration that came in, um, you know, uh, and pushing the, this super extreme right uh, narratives and, and trying to, you know, um, base, base, holistically base it on, well, I mean, we're just Republicans or we're just, you know, th this is um, and hiding behind certain things that they didn't have to hide behind before uh, once Trump came into power. So, I mean, I think it's, um, and, and that's been evident in Canada too. It's been definitely spillover effect into Canada. A lot of these different groups you see like make Canada great again or make Britain great again. It was kind of framed after this uh, make America great again movement that was going on in the U.S., right? Yeah. The, how fringe do you say that these groups are? You know, a lot of times it's easy to s dismiss this as, you know, like these are extremists, most people aren't like this. But, you know, what is the link between what's happening in these groups and mainstream political discourse in the U.S.? I mean, yeah, that's, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, there was a book that was just written called The Extreme Gone Mainstream by Cynthia Miller Idris, like talking about uh, this direct stuff. But like, it's like, the different things that have come up, like uh, something like QAnon or like Pizzagate, these types of things. So like, there's a, I, like, I'm seeing a definite shift in like, especially with those types of groups or those type, uh, types of ideologies. It's like, you know, people in their, in their forties, in their fifties, like uh, getting into these, um, these different things where often it's seen it before it was seen as like youth subculture movements or like, you know, like they're super extreme, like the clan, like, you know, neo-Nazi skin. That, that's like, that seems like pretty extreme to get into. But if you're just talking about some sort of uh, conspiracy theory uh, kind of thing, like people don't see that really as like a, as much of a threat as something that like, you know, Nazis walking down the street with swastika flags. Now it's shifted to something like Proud Boys where that's still very, they're still a pretty extreme group, but they're, you know, they're wearing, uh, you know, polo shirts and, and they, you know, a lot of them look like your average college kid, but that's their recruitment method, right? Is to try to recruit, you know, the regular folks, the regular mainstream folks into these, into these groups where, you know, that's not something we were seeing before, like as much of before where they're trying to, you know, they wanted to be on the fringe. They wanted to be much different. They wanted to be seen as the sort of the, the, alternate to the state the alternate to the norms right but now it's like they're trying to fit into the societal norms like you saw 
the rise of the alt-right with Richard Spencer, right? And, uh, you know, guys wearing suits, the, the Nazis in suits, right? Like it's, um, that wasn't really a new phenomenon either, but he was bringing it back. Like in the, in the late 90s, there was, there was a whole like push to try to get like these, like, um, you know, primmed up Nazis uh, so they could fit into the mainstream, so they could like bring, uh, you know, people in that they would never have been able to recruit beforehand, right? You know, some people on the right and Republicans uh, in the U.S. are quick to say uh, when faced with these realities about what's going on in terms of right-wing extremism, they'll say, you know, well, look at Antifa. So I want to ask you, how does left-wing terrorism compare to right-wing terrorism in the U.S.? I, I'm not sure the exact statistic, but I can I can say that uh, they, there's no that's not a comparison. Uh, the amount of actual uh, violent uh, you know, violent uh, extremist attacks that, that are associated with the left is way, way below any kind of, uh, you know, statistic that we're seeing from the right. I mean, I could sit here and name off, you know, just in the last year, I can name far right uh, incidents. Um, though, I think, I think what's, what we're missing here is that, like, Antifa in itself, the way that, that it was in, in the past is that it's, it's been, you know, it's been a group that's been comprised of sort, sort of, it's not organized, it's not actually a, you know, a movement as it's sort of projected in the media and, and by the far right. Like they want to, they want to say that it's this organized, like, you know, conspiracy to call everything else right wing or whatever, but it's not, it's not even like that. It's just, it's based on, you know, random people in random areas that are uh, rejecting uh, neo-Nazism and rejecting the far right. So um, I'm not saying that there isn't any violence that's associated with it because, I'll, I'll, you know, anytime that you get opposing groups, you're, there's a likelihood that there could be, be violence. But as far as it goes for like violent extremist attacks or terrorism uh, related stuff, uh, the far right way outweighs the left on that. Um, and and I, th I mean, I could be wrong. There's experts out there that that uh, might might say that there are more attacks than I than I know of. But I have like I have no recollection of hearing about uh, a violent far left attack uh, that you know. And and often the far right is attacking religious institutions. They're attacking you know specific groups. They're like it's 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 very evident what they're trying to do. I mean, you can, you can think back over the last decade and, and there's been a lot of deaths associated with the, with the violent far right in the United States and Canada, so. So the Center for Hate, Bias and Extremism um, at UOIT also looks at these issues in Canada as far as I understand, correct? Yeah. So what would you say is happening here in Canada uh, in comparison to the US and elsewhere? I mean, we're not without problems here. I mean, I think there's been, uh, I think some of the stats say that there's been a 150% increase in, in crimes against the people who uh, identify as uh, Arab or South Asian and um, different, um, different other identifiable groups in Canada have also been experiencing uh, uh, Jewish people, uh, uh, anti-Semitic incidents are, are, are definitely increasing as well as, as, well as anti-Black and anti-Indigenous crimes. So. Uh, we're not without problems here, and of course, we you know we we know there's been um, some some very tragic stories as well with the the Quebec City attack and things like this. Like it, it's um, 
yeah, we, we, there's still a lot of work to do up here. I, I, wish I, could re- I wish I could report in that it's, oh, things are changing up here. They're so much better than the United States. I, I, think, um, I think there's still there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good research that's being done on, uh, out there and also uh, a lot of good programs that we're developing in Canada here to, to respond to this type of thing and, and try to build resilience back in communities that have been affected by this stuff. But uh, it's... Um, uh, we've got it. We've got a big hill to climb. I think. When it comes to radicalization, there's many different levels, regardless of whether it's like uh, uh, Islamic radicalization or from on the right wing. So, how can we really address this issue, both in terms of uh, reacting to these groups and also preventing people from being radicalized? Um. Yes, radicalization, I think, yeah, you're, you're right there. That's, uh, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in a certain particular way. It doesn't, uh, you know, there's not a certain person who becomes radicalized. I, often that was something that, you know, was uh, before people were thinking, oh, it's people who come from, you know, poor families or, you know, they had trauma in their childhood or whatever. They, this could be very well. Those, those types of people could become radicalized. But, um, yeah, I think... Um, we can we can look at radicalization as as trying to figure out what's ha- what's been happening in these people's lives, uh, but also um, trying to approach it from if this makes sense, trying to approach it from a human perspective, trying to say that people can get wrapped up in this stuff, and we have to have those elements in our communities that can help uh, with people who have become this way, uh, so that we can help them with uh, if they get to a point where they think they're going to get involved in actual groups or actual violence stuff like this there's a risk to the community, there's a risk to the, those people. I mean, there's, we have to, um, there has to be certain, uh, certain things in place and certain programs in place that where that people can, can receive this help. And I, I know in the US and in Canada, some programs have been popping up. Um, uh, for instance, Life After Hate in, in, out of Chicago, they've been helping people leave uh, far right movements. Uh, so, you know, over in the UK, they've had pre- the Prevent program since, uh, uh, I forget the amount of years, but it's been helping people leave radical, uh, radical movements for a number of years. Um, and, and it's, I think we're learning from the challenges and mistakes that were made before about how to try to help with this. And I think it also has to do with uh, earlier education, also education across more, uh, you know, uh, more facets of society, not just the people who are working in like law enforcement or preventing violent extremism or that kind of thing. It has to like, like you know, we have to, the outreach needs to be done with practitioners who are working out there in like social work and psychologists and uh, also community, uh, community outreach people. So we can notice these things and help youth or help people that are, uh, uh, you know, finding themselves involved in this stuff. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because a lot of the news coverage you see is kind of reporting on stats or what's happening. But I think, yeah, you highlight that it's really important to think about how to address these issues and how to deal with people who are radicalized as numbers go up. Uh, Wonderful. That's all I had. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Here's what else we're covering this week. First, how will COVID-19 vaccines be distributed once available to the public? Michelle Allen tells us how Toronto plans to fight the spread. Then, Kayla Empey and Sidra Jaffrey speak to professors of hands-on faculties to see how they've adjusted to remote learning. Finally, Josh Scott and Alex Sear take a look at how professors are combating potential cheating on virtual exams in the upcoming final season. <laughs>
That's all for this week's Blue and Gold. Thanks a lot for listening. Catch up with us next week for more of your community's top stories. Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and Ryerson School of Journalism. I'm your host, Nujudal Malis. Our executive producers are Jasmine Ratch, Alex Sear, and Sidra Jaffrey. Our editor-in-chief is Patrick Swadden, and our managing editor is Michelle Allen. Our instructors are Peter Baker-George and H.G. Watson. Until next time. Thank you.